available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. From Community Broadcasting Services, the talking newspaper for Coventry, this is Outlook. Hello, welcome to Outlook. I'm Sheila Allen. And this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 23rd of November, 2022. And coming up in the next 90 minutes or so, we've got Margaret talking about another piece of architectural treasure in Coventry. We've got a piece about Agatha Christie, one of my favourite writers. We're finding out more about vegan and vegetarian food and about pockets in clothes. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? And a bit more about nature. We've got a bit about crows, which can be a bit of a pest in my garden. And finally, somebody called Nick Raven. That follows very nicely for the piece about crows, doesn't it? But all of that is later. First, we start with a review of the past week's local news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Children's literary charity Bookmark has called for Coventry reading volunteers to give up 30 minutes, two days a week, helping youngsters with their reading skills. More than 400 children in England aged between 5 and 9 are on the waiting list for a reading volunteer, with many at risk of falling behind if they don't receive support. Many of the pupils the charity supports speak English as a second language, with nearly half recognised as a disadvantage. These factors have led to them fearing the risk of childhood illiteracy widening. Before the pandemic, 380,000 British children said they did not own any books, and with a cost of living crisis impacting people's finances, Bookmark believes this figure will go up. In addition, one in six adults living in England struggles with basic reading, and 7.1 million people have poor literary skills. Bookmark has designed a programme for volunteers to book 30-minute sessions twice a week around their other commitments. Bookmark CEO Greg Hell Crawshaw Sadler said, We know that poor literacy is devastating for children and can affect their mental well-being, which can extend into adulthood. Reading is such a vital life skill, and enjoyment of reading is one of the biggest indicators of future mm-hmm. success. Being able to read well helps someone manage everyday life and having the ability to navigate words is vital and it starts in childhood. A £150 million project to create the UK's first all-electric bus city by 2025 has taken a major step forward with 50 new greener buses on the streets of Coventry. Transport for West Midlands has been working with Coventry City Council on the scheme and has secured £50 million Department of Transport funding to develop charging infrastructure and to top up the investment being made by bus operators in upgrading their fleets with electric vehicles. This will include upgrades such as charge points at bus depots across Coventry and Warwickshire. The 50 new National Express Coventry double-decker buses are the first of up to 300 new vehicles to arrive in the next three years under the pollution-busting Coventry's Electric programme. National Express has also invested £60 million, meaning over a third of its Coventry fleet is now electric, with another 80 committed for early 2023. 
Carpentry will see improved air quality and reduced greenhouse gases, and passengers will benefit from a fleet of brand new, comfortable and fully accessible buses. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, Coventry City Council's Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, said, We put the bid together and convinced the government that Coventry is the right place to become an all-electric bus city. Hitting a milestone of 50 new all-electric vehicles is fantastic, and the city is really gearing up to creating the right infrastructure for the increase in zero-emission vehicles. A quarter of the council's fleet are now all-electric, and we have 607 charging points in the city, more than any other city outside of London. This is all part of our joint efforts to help lead on the green industrial revolution and cut our carbon footprint. There are a number of partners involved, and it highlights the excellent joint working relations between the different organisations involved. We are very proud to say that Coventry will be the country's first all-electric bus city. Dozens of public, business and community organisations in Coventry are coming together to remind people that their buildings and venues are open and free for local people to call in throughout the day. Spaces including all local libraries in the city and family hubs are among the many places that residents can pop into, especially during the cold winter months. Across the city, organisations are letting people know that venues will be open throughout the day and visitors will find a warm welcome as well as other activities to do. In libraries, people will be able to use facilities such as computers and Wi-Fi and take part in activities. Lots of the buildings that are open to the public will also provide access to advice and support about the cost of living crisis. Details of venues and other cost of living advice can be found on the council website. The awareness raising message is because of the financial pressures that people are facing. Councillor David Welsh, Cabinet Member for Housing and Communities said, I'm really proud of the way that all sorts of organisations throughout Coventry are coming together to support people in need. There are lots of places where residents will receive a warm welcome and the number of venues is increasing every day. Each day, more public, private and community-run spaces are springing up to offer support in whatever way they can. In Coventry, partnership work involving dozens of agencies and charities is already being publicised to help people in the midst of this crisis. Councillor Welsh added, The city is doing what it can, but it is never going to mitigate the full impact of inflation and rising energy costs. That's why we must continue to pressure the government and call on them to do more. A campaign is underway to highlight the various ways people can get help because of rising prices, and this is down to the joint efforts of lots of organisations in the city. We are publicising lots of information about how people can get support with benefits, finances, from food hubs, details of housing support funds, and lots more. Providing details of the venues that are open throughout the day is also part of this. Ukrainian guests and refugees united as a special event last weekend to say thank you to the people of Coventry for helping them in their time of need. More than 300 refugees have resettled in the city since war broke out in their homeland, plus a further 1,000 arrivals across the Warwickshire region. 
A concert was held and Ukrainian food served to a sold-out Coventry Ukrainian Community Centre on Saturday, November the 19th. In addition to the 150 people in the venue, a waiting list was in operation, giving hope that the event will not be a one-off. The whole concert programme and all the food that is being put together entirely by the Ukrainian guests, said Peter Luxer, Vice Chair of the Association of Ukrainians in GB, Coventry. We, as the existing community, are on hand to help facilitate and show them where resources are and how to use them. It is their way of saying thank you to all those who have helped them integrate into local area and provide a safe roof over their head and be a safe sanctuary. Audience members include local councillors, including formal deputisation for Coventry's Lord Mayor by the immediate former Lord Mayor, Councillor John McNicholas, representatives from Coventry City Council's migration team, Coventry Refugee Migrant Centre, the Freemans Guild and Cadiva Sisters, including Lady Cadiva. Host sponsors who have welcomed the new arrivals into their home, as well as members of the Coventry Ukrainian community. A plaque was unveiled in remembrance of a hero firefighter who gave his life to save other peoples in the Coventry Blitz. Fireman Edward James Booth was based in Stoke-on-Trent, but was deployed to fight fires in Coventry as the Luftwaffe bombs rained down on the fateful night of November 14, 1940. Edwin, aged 38, was badly injured, along with several members of his crew, and he never regained consciousness. Sadly, he passed away two days later, yet another casualty of the appalling conflict. He was survived by his wife, Edna May Booth, and his two sons, Robert, then aged 10, and John, then aged 8. Over half of Coventry's homes, 43,000, were either damaged or destroyed in the massive air raid conducted by Nazi Germany in the Coventry Blitz. It has been called the single most concentrated attack on a British city in the Second World War and lasted for 11 hours. The plaque was unveiled at Hanley Community Fire Station. The Fire Brigade Union's red plaque scheme commemorates firefighters who have lost their lives in the line of duty. Coventry residents face a potential hike in council tax of 5% under new government rules as demand for services soars. Coventry City Council can now increase its tax above 3% per year without putting it to the people in a referendum. It was revealed during Thursday's autumn statement. If the council chooses to raise the levy from April 2023, a Band D household in the city will see their council tax go up by £100 next year. Richard Brown, the authority's finance boss, did not rule out a rise in council tax in an interview with Coventry Live. Asked if council tax will go up by 5% next year, he said, I'm going to say we will have to put that into our models and see what that does to us. Let's just be clear that council tax is 2% council tax and 1% adult social care precept. That has now been raised, the cap to 3% council tax and a 2% adult social care precept. So once again we're in the position where government are passing the buck onto local people. He added, it is going to be a real struggle. 
We want to keep our council tax as low as possible. I've said before in this office that because of the pressure and challenges facing us from a budgetary fiscal point of view, nothing is off the table. So we're going to have to have a look at that and we will plug those in. I'll take a view from colleagues and we'll look at various options. All I can say to people is I'm really conscious of the pressures that ordinary households are facing out there and I don't want to add to those unnecessarily. I would never do that. As to here be cutting services, Councillor Brown said, No, my objective every year has been to try to maintain those frontline services as best we can. I don't want to cut any of those services. However, he added, I really want to try to maintain and hold those frontline services as best I can, but there's no guarantees around that. Councillor Brown says that the government's latest budget will affect the average person really badly. He also believes local government has been left to fend for itself and will be forced to make efficiency savings to cope. It really is a challenge for us, he said. There was probably nothing in there that we haven't already forecast in our budget thinking. The council runs hundreds of services, some of which are self-funding. But children's services and adult social care, both relied on by the city's most vulnerable, eat huge chunks of the annual budget. And unlike the bin strikes earlier this year, the costs of these services are not a one-off. Two Coventry door-to-door services will be merging to give passengers access to more vehicles, longer operation hours and lower fares. West Midlands Bus On Demand and Ring and Ride will be trying a merger in a bid to reduce costs following a slow recovery after the pandemic. It will create Britain's largest on-demand or demand-responsive transport service. The Ring and Ride door-to-door service is available to those who are unable or struggle to use regular public transport due to mobility issues or social isolation, but it is currently only carrying around a quarter of its pre-COVID passenger numbers. The West Midlands bus on demand was introduced to the city last year and is an Uber-style shared bus service. Both services are under contract from Transport for West Midlands, GFWM, and are dealing with issues such as rising fuel costs, driver shortages and reduced passenger numbers. As a result, both would be facing an uncertain long-term future if they continued to operate on their own. The merger will be run next year, and benefits will include half-price concession fares for those under 19. Ring and ride customers will also be able to travel to villages surrounding Coventry and they will have greater flexibility over bookings. Pete Bond, TFWM Director of Integrated Transport Services said, Like the wider bus industry, these services are facing a difficult future following the double whammy of lower demand after the COVID pandemic and rising costs of operation. But we know the Ring and Ride service in particular offers a valued social lifeline for its customers who are mostly older or disabled people. Passengers of both services will, through the trial, share rides under the West Midlands On Demand banner and now have the opportunity to travel further and at different times of the day. 
The Co-op has introduced a raft of emergency measures to help customers and employees during the cost of living crisis. The largest independent retailer in Coventry and Warwickshire is enhancing its rewards for members and has announced schemes to help out its 800-strong workforce. Heart of England Co-op Chief Executive Ali Kerji said he was unaware of any other similar support package that comes close to what we are offering. In a boost for thousands of shoppers at the Society's 37 food stores, six of which are in Coventry, members' rewards have been increased from 2 to 3% until the end of March 2023, when the rise will be reviewed. Mr Kerji said, Our rewards scheme is already generous, but in these unprecedented times, we felt it was important to give our customers an even bigger return on what they spend with us. As a cooperative, we are owned by our members, who are also our customers. They pay £1 to have a stake in our business. Every time they make a purchase, they accrue credit to use at a little later date in one of our food stores. We're delighted to be increasing the amount they will receive. The Society has also brought in a comprehensive range of benefits for those employed in its food and funeral divisions as well as the head office in Folshill. Discounts on food shopping have been doubled to 20%. A sponsored breakfast club is providing free cereal, milk and bread. Sanitary products are also being given away and staff can buy unsold bakery and hot food for just 10p. Every month, five employees will be randomly chosen to receive £100 on their reward cards. Internal food banks have been set up too for items to be donated or swapped. To kick off this initiative, the Heart of England Co-op is donating goods worth £50 at its various sites. High inflation means there are pressures on our cost base on a scale we have never experienced in recent living memory. However, extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures and we have taken this action because social responsibility is in our DNA. We were founded on a number of ethical principles, including supporting local communities and being fair, open and honest in our business dealings. We're an independent organisation, and our head office in Coventry is just a stroll away from where we started out in 1832. History-making modern matron May Parsons has been honoured as an Endeavour Award winner by Coventry University for her contributions to nursing. May was part of the first cohort on the university's Senior Leaders Master's Degree Apprenticeship and has just completed her Master's in Global Healthcare Management. She was given the award by the School of Nursing Midwifery and Health at her graduation. The Endeavour Award is granted to students that go above and beyond during their studies. In December 2020, May became the first person in the world to administer a COVID-19 vaccine to a patient outside a clinical trial at Coventry's University Hospital. She also received the George Cross from Queen Elizabeth II on behalf of NHS England in July. And in September, she was part of the late Queen's funeral procession. May said... When I moved to the UK from the Philippines, I never dreamed it would be possible to meet Queen Elizabeth II and get awards like this. 
It is an honour and I am representing the NHS workers, women, people from ethnic minority backgrounds and the people we have lost during the pandemic. There are a lot of people out there who do this job with the same commitments, who are more deserving. So this award is for all our NHS workers because it is the people that make the NHS. I am proud of myself for completing this course during the pressures of managing the COVID wards. And it has helped me further my leadership skills and taught me resilience and to be more self-reflective. You never stop learning and you can do anything you put your mind to. Coventry University's Pro Vice-Chancellor for Health and Life Sciences, Lisa Bayliss-Pratt, added, made a commitment to lifelong learning while saving lives through her work on the wards and the vaccination campaign epitomises the phrase of going above and beyond. She is an inspiration to our students and everyone associated with the nursing profession, providing a local and a global perspective on how we can all work together to create better futures and deliver the best care possible to the patients, families and communities we all serve. Computers, laptops and printers used in Coventry College's recently closed Henley campus have been refurbished and sent to help underprivileged children at a primary school in Zimbabwe. The donated IT equipment included obsolete computer equipment as well as scanners and projectors from the campus which closed last year. It will go towards helping to improve the education and learning resources at Chimurenga Primary School which is in Zimbabwe's eastern province. The college used Coventry business Sowitech to wipe the hard drives of the equipment. The firm takes its name from an abbreviation of Sahawa, meaning best friend in the Shona language, which is native to Zimbabwe. Peaceful Jim Wanda, asset recovery manager at Sowitech, hopes that more colleges, schools and businesses in the region will support the project to improve educational access in Zimbabwe. The college's vice-principal for business growth, engagement and partnerships, Gemma Knott, added she hoped the equipment would be extremely beneficial to children in Zimbabwe. Outlook News Thank you to Elaine for helping me with the news there. I hope there was something there to interest you. Not very many announcements this week. In fact, there isn't really any at all. There's just a lighting up and down time. So sunrise is 7.41 in the morning and sunset is 4.05 at night. So we only get over eight hours of daylight and the days we've had some days, it's barely got light at all. So it's definitely very wintry at the moment, but I hope you're getting through these miserable grey days. And now we've got news of what's on at the Resource Centre with Joe. Well, thank you very much. Hello, everybody. It is Joe this week. Hugh is away doing other exciting things, including celebrating his mother's 90th birthday. So we send Hugh's mum all our love for her 90th on the weekend. Hope they've had a lovely time. Uh, yes, it's very dark and dismal in the mornings, mm, isn't it? I thought yes. that this morning as I opened my curtains and four o'clock you're starting to get into the dark. <laughs> so the more fun we can have in other ways, the better, I think. Um, so, what do I need to tell you about this week? Um, <clears throat> we have, uh, as you well know, uh, the winter warmer coming up on Saturday the 3rd of December. That's going to be between 11 and 3. 
it's a packed schedule I think all over town that day because I think a lot of places are having their Christmas parties and their and their fates um, but if you can come along and support us and uh, have a bit of fun um, we shall have the usual range of stalls craft we've got a, a lady coming with a jewellery stall this year which will be lovely and Hugh is doing the catering so I think um, he will be doing his famous pumpkin soup and a range of hot and cold snacks so that will be lovely if anyone is able to offer any help in setting up the day before on Friday the 2nd between about 1 and 3 1 and 4 we'd love people who are like like the role of elf and like to decorate Christmas <laughs> trees and put the baubles on mm. and get the place looking lovely and on the Saturday, if you're able to give us a couple of hours of help with any of the stalls, please let Heather or any of us know. That would be a great help. And uh, hopefully we'll have a lovely time. The other things to tell you, well, another Christmas-themed thing, which I'm sure Hugh has been telling you about already, but I'll mention it again, is that we have our Christmas cards again this year. The Resource Centre for the Blind, eight cards in a pack of four different designs, and they are quite fun little cartoons, and they will be £3.50 a pack, as before. Uh, they're in reception, Heather can sell them to you, or they're in the charity shop at Earlsden, and I think in Bedworth as well. So if your family members would like them, then you can order some in. Um, the other thing I think Hugh did mention last week um, is that he's running another theatre trip, and that will be to the Criterion Theatre on... I think the day that's working out as most popular is Tuesday the 13th of December. Um, so if you want to come along on Tuesday the 13th of December, uh, please let Heather know as soon as possible. The tickets are £12.50 and there'll be transport and fish and chip costs on top. Uh, and the play, I believe, is called Alice by Laura Wade. I'm afraid I can't tell you anything about it. I, okay. It's not a play I'm aware of, so uh, I'm sure he's happy to tell you a bit more. But if you want to put your name down for that trip, then let us know. Um, and lastly, um, just to remind you that perhaps this time of year, some of us are, we have to admit, we've got rather everything we need in our lives. We don't need more presents necessarily. Um, if you'd like to think about the idea that maybe a relative who wants to get you a gift could perhaps become a friend of the centre, um, which is very small amounts of money each month, £3 a month maybe, so instead of buying you something for 30 or 40 pounds, mm -hmm. they could perhaps decide to um, become a friend and support the centre over a year. Uh, so just floating that idea, we have forms here for people to fill out. And if you'd like to take any, then please ask any of the team. Um, it's just a lovely way sometimes of doing something mm. a bit different, isn't it? Yes, that sounds a nice charity. idea, doesn't it? Yeah, we all yeah. end up with presents we don't know what to do with, so yes. that would be really good. And we kind of it? run out of ideas of what to buy yes. people, don't we, sometimes? <laughs> so I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, thank have a good you week, everybody. Okay, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. Now, Sarah's not with us this week, but she has prepared sport for us, so I'm sure we're going to find out what's going on in the sports world, but I hope it's not all football. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, folks. It's Sarah here with Sport. Now, it's going to be a bit different this week because I'm not going to give the usual low roundup of local results and then look at national. In fact, I'm just going to talk about three national 
sports. Firstly, and I'll get the balls out the way first. In the ovoid ball, the rugby league wheelchair final. England beat France 24 points to 28. Now it was very tight, I have to say, because I only switched on with about a quarter of an hour to go because I was at a meeting and at that point it was 24 all and it was clear that France had been dominant. But then one of our England guys got the ball and headed and scored a try. Four points to England. Unfortunately, we did not convert it, so it remained that frustrating four points, which meant for about the last ten minutes, if France scored a try and converted, they would have won. But they didn't, so we won. Now, just a quick word about wheelchair rugby league. I am no expert on this. So this is purely from a spectator's point of view. There are not the standard 13 players on the pitch. In fact, it's not really a pitch at all. It's played usually on slightly larger than a basketball court. Um, and also what I do find confusing is that the players Unlike most traditional wheelchair sports, many are able to get out of their wheelchairs so that when they kick for a conversion, they do literally stand up and kick. But in an interview after the match, I found out that many of the players had come to wheelchair rugby league having played in ambulant rugby league but sustained an injury. So I suppose it stands to sense, really, if you've got something like a bad back, you probably find the wheelchair very vital for your quick moves, but you can still occasionally get up and kick. Anyway, that is one England World Champions. And our second sport that we're now World Champions at, and this time I'm talking about Great Britain, is trampolining. Now, you know I'm rather bonkers on gymnastics and I've talked about how you could never have imagined this a few years ago. Well, if I'd said to you, who's the world champions at trampolining? You'd probably have said the States or possibly Canada or Germany. Well, no, nope, it's Great Britain. In fact, in the final which was competed between the top five countries in the world. We beat the States into second place, Portugal into third, and Japan into fourth. Now, the final consisted of individual and synchronised. The individual, both men and women, is pretty much as it says on the tin, one person boinging up on the trampoline at a time. But the synchro, synchronised, is really interesting because you don't just see them being synchronised, but you can hear them because you hear the thud when they bounce. 
So when the Japan, poor Japanese team came adrift, it was very obvious. Now, when you're scoring in trampolining, you only count eight bounces. You are allowed preliminary bounces to get up to your height. And by the looks of things, they reach giddy heights of about 25 feet. Ooh, frightening. But only eight bounces are you allowed to score on. So you don't take any dead bounces where you just gain a bit of height, but every bounce has to score. So you saw backward somersaults, twists, forward somersaults and twists. Gosh, it's a long way from my pièce de résistance, which used to be a front somersault onto my knees. Never mind, again, well, good, Great Britain. And I'm getting quite used to hearing God Save the King now. Now, alongside the trampolining at the actually called Trampolining World Championships, which was held in Bulgaria this year, there was the Tumbling World Championships in the same venue. And, yes, you've guessed it, Great Britain won the gold again. Cue that song, you know, the one that goes, God Save the King. Tumbling is best equated to the floor on gymnastics, but it just takes place on a long, narrow strip of mat and involves the run-up, the round-off, and then a sequence of back somersaults, twists, front somersaults, whatever, you name it. A bit in many ways like the old acrobats that the circus used to do. Anyway, I don't care because we are world champions again, beating France and that United States of America. So, well done Great Britain and England in the Rugby League. P.S. Cue again to Gareth Southgate. Come on, lads, you can do it in Qatar. And that was a slightly shorter sport this week, but I have got my cheek in stitches. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Entertaining as ever. Now it's just over to you for your part of the programme. It's Dave with Postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. We begin this week's Postbag with a greeting in the style of an actor who sadly died recently. Leslie Phillips was best known for being a comedy film character, a charmer. So here's a greeting in his style. Hello. Well, here's Graham Well with his memories of Leslie Phillips. Yes, I remember Leslie Phillips, the actor. Uh, I certainly remember him from the Navy Mark. I know he played in Carry On films. In fact, I think his career started before then. In the early 50s, uh, he featured in some uh, old old films. Um, 
But I've been listening or watching a lot of these old television dramas on ITV3 and ITV4 recently whilst waiting for my library books to arrive, and that's another story which I won't go into now. Um, but I've noticed in playing some odd uh, parts in some of the couple of Agatha Christie um, dramas, um, Ruth Grendel, whatever her name is, um, Mystery, and uh, it was only the other week actually I saw him in um, an old uh, edition of Heartbeat. Uh, so, you know, uh, although you would say he's a reasonably big star, he's not too proud to uh, play some, what should we say, jobbing parts um, occasionally to uh, keep his name in the limelight. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's another one gone. Thanks, Graham. Well, talking about another one gone, Julia turns her thoughts to Prime Ministers in her report entitled... Whatever happened to Mrs. Truss? She was such a nice lady, very jolly. She didn't last very long, did she? Mr. Bojo is on holiday. He likes his holidays. He likes parties too. I wonder if that nice Mrs. Truss likes parties. She looks as though she enjoys a good knees up. My friend John said we should invite that nice Mr. Corbyn back. He's not so keen on parties. I don't know if he likes holidays, though. I haven't seen him for a while. Maybe he's in Blackpool riding on a donkey. Mr. Sunak is the official Prime Minister this week. I don't expect he'll last long. Perhaps we should elect uh, half a dozen Prime Ministers, so we've got a spare one living in a Wendy house in the back garden of Downing Street. Then it could be uh, one out while the next one gets ready to come in. How about that then, Julia? Well, thank you, Julia. I do remember hearing that Mrs. Trust did have uh, fizz with Liz parties, but there you are. Uh, Anyway, I do remember having a conductor tour around 10 Downing Street, an exclusive one, with the late Von Nichols. There was a big wooden door with a big number 10 with a wonky zero. Maybe it ought to be replaced with a revolving door now, (laughs) with the uh, change of uh, Prime Ministers that's been happening so often these days. Well, uh, Von and I did a report on a visit and description of inside number 10 for Outlook. Graham Whale is concerned about severe cutbacks planned for local radio. So, there's going to be cutbacks in local radio. This, I think, has been predicted for some time, but it's uh, not to the extent as what's going to happen. It surprised me, actually. Less than 50% of programming during the week, and no local programs at all at the weekend, apart from sport. And this is just to free up resources to produce uh, podcasts and uh, well online facilities Uh, but uh, there are exceptions apparently Uh, Radio WM will be producing locally programs from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening and BBC Radio London and Radio Manchester will be running local programs throughout the day 
But for the rest, there's going to be a big redundancy, I think, and a lot of the voices we're used to hearing on local radio now will disappear. And a lot of people who work beyond the microphones and behind the scenes will have to start looking for a new career because uh, though a lot of people came to the BBC from the commercial sector, the commercial sector is a young industry and they're looking for young presenters. So the prospect of current BBC presenters going to commercial sector uh, is very, very remote, I think. Perhaps Dan Sandville or whatever his name is is the only one I can think of. So, uh, no, it's not going to be a pleasant thing to look forward to. Talking of Dan Sambo, he was a tremendous support to my wife Sheila when she did a stepathon up and down the foot of the stairs to strengthen her legs following a stroke. This is the moment when she reached a thousand steps. Dan the man, hey Dan. Hello there, good morning. Now, back in May, we had a call from David Monk in Camden, and he told us all about his wonderful wife, Sheila. Now, she had a stroke last year. She lost the speech and movement as well, although thankfully she is starting to improve. And a physiotherapist recommended that she do a few steps of her staircase each day. But Sheila being Sheila took it as an opportunity to raise some money for Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind. If she could do 15 steps a day, by July, she would have reached a thousand steps, so that would have given her a goal to work for it. But she'll be competing with Colonel Tom. <laughs> I think that's on par with Tom. And uh, that was back in May. And today, David has called us back to say she was on her final 15 steps. And here's the moment she completed her amazing challenge. Um, Nearly there. Come on. 12. Two more to go. Okay, this is it. This is your last step, Sheila. Are you ready? You've done it. You've done it. Congratulations. Dan Sambor went on to put the report of Sheila's achievements on every local radio in the country, plus five live as part of the BBC's Make a Difference campaign. Sadly, Sheila hasn't been able to walk in recent times, but she raised over £3,000 for the Resource Centre, Might and Hospice and Earlston Stroke Support Group with a Stepathon and Pedalathon with an armchair cycle, plus nominating the Resource Centre for a Queen's Award for Voluntary Service and for Trish and Rosie to be honoured by the Queen, they received MBEs. And another inspirational person is Mark Howell, who gave me this report on his recent holiday. Holiday in the Isle of Wight. On Monday the 24th of October, a group from Open Doors took 11 of us to the Isle of Wight for a week. We stayed in Norton Grange Hotel. There were three coaches full, but uh, me and Tony Bow went in the car down to Portsmouth Docks to get on the ferry. It took us three hours to get there, but me and Tony Bow had to get the four o'clock ferry. When we got to our chalet, we unpacked our bags and then we had a rest before getting ready for dinner. 
Then we went into the other room where the entertainment was playing. The band were called High Clouds. They sang songs from the 80s and we were dancing. Tuesday the 29th of October, we went on the coach to a town called Ride. We looked around the shops and we had a cup of coffee and a cake. Then we went back to the hotel to have a rest before getting ready for dinner. After nine, we went into the other room where the entertainment was playing. Mark and Julie Collins were dancing. We danced the night away. Fantastic. Wednesday the 27th of October, the group walked into Great Yarmouth to have a look around the shops for presents to take back to our friends and girlfriends. We had a cup of coffee and cake before going back to the hotel. Then we did activities such as archery and bows and arrows. Then we went back to our chalet to have a rest before getting ready for our evening meal and for the boring comedian. Thursday 28th of October the group walked back into Great Yarmouth to have another look around the shops and to have a cup of coffee and a cake before walking back to the hotel. We went to the pictures. We watched the film Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise. Then we went back to the chalet to pack our bags to come home. Then we got ready for our last dinner and dance. Thank you, Mark, for that great report. It sounds as if you had an absolutely fantastic time. Brilliant. Tell us about your holidays. Anyway, now Tina tells you of a weekend away from Licky Grange, Bromsgrove. Going back to 1972, my mother used to work for the transport car, and this man called Harry Johnson, he said to my mother, he said, Pat, he said, I'll pick her up this afternoon, because we were allowed to go home at the weekend, and we went through Spaghetti Junction, and we had ice cream, and I always used to call him Uncle Harry. Tina would like to ask you, or do you, did you, or do you know of any pupils or members of staff who went to Licky Grange, Bromsgrove between 1972 and 1978? If you did, you may remember a teacher called Mrs. Clamp. Mrs. Clamp had just got married, and her husband turned the, uh, the ambulance into a minibus. We went to Droitwich because that's where they started their married life, started their, their new home as a married couple. Thank you, Tina, and for your messages this week. Thank you for a full postbag, by the way. Great. A uh, few subjects you might like to talk about in postbag. The cuts in local radio. That must be one topic for conversation, knowing how much radio means to visually impaired people. Please express your feelings in postbag, and if I can, I'll pass them on to the BBC. Memories of school days, and also your holidays, and anything arising from any article on Outlook. You know the phone number, 02476 717522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. 
Okay, thanks a lot. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. So thank you to Dave for Postbag. Now that leads us to the Architectural Treasures of Coventry and this week Margaret is looking at the Frederick Lancaster Library. Known as the Castle, this striking £19 million building designed by Short and Associates houses the University Library and was completed in 2001. It is the largest deep plan naturally ventilated building in Europe. It was named after Coventry-based Frederick Lancaster, who designed one of the first British petrol-driven cars and invented many parts of the modern car. It has numerous study zones based over five floors and central study and resource space for staff and students. It houses over 350 computers, books, journals and electronic resources and numerous study areas. It was built for sustainable energy use and all floors have movable partitions. The light is carried through the building by five 6.5 metre square light wells which carry natural light through the building. The light well also doubles as a conduit to carry natural air to ventilate the building. This makes it entirely naturally ventilated, except the computer area, which needs air conditioning. Air is drawn into the building through vents on all elevations into a plenum beneath the ground floor. This feeds air into the light wells that is then fed onto the floors by vents at the foot of each. They open and close in response to sensors around the building, checking on temperature and air quality. Air exhausts out through vents in the perimeter walls to the towers. These are the most eye-catching feature of the building. Air also exhausts into the central light well, so there are four inlet light wells and one exhaust light well. The metal constructions on the tops of the towers also have that function. Air rises through the building as long as it can leave freely out of these towers. High winds can hamper the convection effect. The metal structures are designed to deflect winds of all strengths to ensure the building breathes. The building monitors its own environment and stores heat to be released at the appropriate time. At night, The building sends cool air around itself, so in the morning it will start at a comfortable temperature and with all this, the building runs a reduced energy cost, costing half of what a similar conventional building would cost. Uh, Now next week, Margaret will be talking about one of the oldest pubs in Coventry, the Golden Cross, which is, must admit, I've been into more than once. Agatha Christie is the writer of many a mystery book, creating a mystery herself by disappearing for 11 days, the story of which Bill started to recount last week. He now completes that story, which was written by Lucy Worsley, and this also covers Agatha's second marriage. Agatha's first marriage broke up, and age 38, she made an adventurous journey alone to Iraq. 
There she had a whirlwind romance with the young archaeologist Max Malawan, who became her second husband. Travelling with Max widened her horizons. A trip to Egypt inspired death on the Nile. During a train journey home from Istanbul, murder on the Orient Express was born. After the Second World War, she branched out from novels right for the stage, producing ingenious, reliably entertaining plays like The Mousetrap. Amazingly, lockdowns accepted, it is still running in the West End. She also went on writing the stories that were increasingly in demand by TV and film producers. For those old enough to remember the 60s, Miss Marple was played by the great comedian Margaret Rutherford. For me, watching with my granny, Joan Hickson was the redoubtable puzzle solver, or Julia Mackenzie, or my own special favourite, Geraldine McEwen. By the age of 80, Christie had published a staggering 80 books. She was the first crime writer to have 100,000 copies of 10 of her titles published by Penguin on the same day in 1948, and is listed as the best-selling fiction writer of all time, having sold more than 2 billion copies in 44 languages. One of the last in her lifetime, Passenger to Frankfurt, a standalone published in September 1970, featuring adventurer the Stafford Nye, spent an incredible six months on the bestseller list. By now, it had become a ritual for millions of fans to buy the annual Christie for Christmas. She died in 1976, her husband of 45 years by her side. It was the top story on the evening news. The more I looked into her personal life, the more I realised Agatha wasn't quite the tower of strength she seemed at first appearance. Essential to her success was the support she received from her archaeologist's second husband. He was 14 years her junior, and she was always the main breadwinner. In return, he was always on her side. She needed this, because since that early loss of her father, Christie had possessed an emotional fragility, but she had it, hid it well. She'd married Max in the aftermath of the second great crisis of her life, after her father's death, which came in 1926. That year, her first husband, Archibald, who served in the Royal Flying Corps, betrayed her. Christie had been in a dark place that year, after the death of her mother, and under pressure to turn out more books, like her 1926 masterpiece, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Archie wasn't able to offer any support. Instead, he announced that he was leaving her for a woman ten years younger, with whom he played golf. All clichés. Christie began to experience what we would now call a deep depression. On a dark December night, she left the substantial family home in Sunningdale, Berkshire. The next morning, her abandoned Morris was found near a steep cliff in the Surrey Downs. Police suspected she was in peril, or even dead, perhaps by her own hand, or perhaps at the hands of her cheating husband. It was a national manhunt, and eleven days later Christie was found alive and well, 
living under a false name in the Old Swan Hotel in the Yorkshire Spa town of Harrogate. Journalists could hardly credit that she'd lost her memory, as she claimed. It seemed incredibly lame, especially after the huge search for which hundreds of policemen and members of the public had volunteered their time. Cynical hacks, it seemed much more likely Christy had disappeared deliberately. Maybe she wanted publicity for her books. Perhaps she had hidden herself away in order to frame her cheating husband for her murder. Under pressure, Christy reluctantly claimed she had made an attempt to take her own life. Driving her car towards the edge of a cliff, couldn't go through with it. The incident, she said, had shocked her into wanting to live, but she couldn't bear to return to her traumatic life as the betrayed Mrs Christie, so she'd run away. It was an awful dark time, exacerbated when the media turned against her, telling their version of the story rather than hers. Millions of readers came to believe she may have been a great writer, that she was somehow a tricky human being. If you'd met Agatha Christie in later life, you might well have mistaken her for her heroine, Miss Marple, a kindly-looking old lady enjoying a cream tea in the garden of her Devon home, Greenway. She knew darkness and pain intimately, and, overcoming that betrayal and public shaming in 1926, I think reveals her true strength of character. That's why... While Agatha Christie had an extraordinary talent, I can also feel a sense of kinship with her. More detailed coverage about Agatha's life can be seen on television on the 25th of November, which is this week. Now, over the last few years, the popularity of vegetarian and vegan food has grown enormously, and supermarkets now have sections devoted to these. Now it's come to the Resource Centre with Chris and Claire Norman's vegan cookery course. Sarah went to talk to them about going vegan and the course that they're running. Right. Hi, it's Sarah here. Not doing sport now, but today I have the pleasure of interviewing Chris and Claire who've been leading the vegan cookery course here at the Resource Centre. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Now, you two are both vegans. Yep. What made you decide to become a vegan? It was Chris. Everyone thinks it was me. Everyone thinks it was my idea, but it wasn't. Yeah, so look, Claire looks the vegan one. Um, for, for context, Claire's slim and good-looking, and I'm fat and not quite good-looking. Well, I'm less fat these days. But it was, we have a friend who's, uh, who's vegan, and... I go through little phases, whether it's making my own shaving foam or DIY or whatever, and I said, oh, let's have a crack at this vegan thing. So I spoke to our friend Nicole about it, and she gave me some suggestions, and we went from there, really, didn't we? We did. And we thought it wouldn't be, well, you particularly thought it wouldn't last very long. And well. Yeah, I basically just thought, oh, it's another phase, it'll be mm-hmm. fine, you know. And how long, have, how long have you been vegan? Nearly four years now. I want to say nearly four years. So that's a bit more than a phase, listeners. A little bit. And what were people's reactions? They varied, didn't they? Yeah, I think a lot of people were like, oh my God, like you can't eat this anymore. You can't eat, like, where do you get your protein? Where, do you, where are you going to get this? Where are you going to get your energy? Where are you going to get your iron? Yeah, and it, lots of people did the whole, you know, it's only for your good. We're just worried about you because, you, you know, you're not going to be eating proper food. 
And weirdly, when we then went, well, hang about, you don't eat proper food. They went, well, I know that, but it's different, isn't it? <laughs> so just to sort of help our listeners who may be more familiar with the term but not actually know what vegan means, what does a vegan not eat? Uh, meat, dairy, eggs, fish. That's about it. But I mean, again, it's... Like, vegan is a lifestyle as well. You know, it's all about not doing any harm to animals or as little harm to animals. It's all about not wearing leather, not wearing fur coats. Um, I think when people talk about being plant-based, it's just the diet. Yeah. So a lot of people say, Claire, oh, I'm going to be a vegan, you've got leather boots. But Claire bought those years ago. What's the point in throwing them away? You're not going to bring the cow back to life and replace its skin by throwing boots away. It's just silly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if any of our listeners are thinking of embarking on being vegan, would you suggest a wham-bam moment where they get up one day and say, right, from today I'm going to be vegan and throw away all their meat, fish, dairy, milk, etc., etc.? Or would you suggest bit by bit? I really think it depends on the individual. I yeah. think some people can just do what we did and kind of go, yeah, we're, we're going vegan. Some people can't. Because I know a lot of people get addicted to cheese, so I know a lot of people go, I can't give up cheese, I can't give up cheese. And it's a big commitment, right? If you've got a freezer full of, you know, nice meats and a fridge full of posh cheeses, you don't want to throw all those in the bin. It's wasteful if nothing else. So maybe... Maybe whatever approach is good for you. If you're that person that needs to go all or nothing, then, yeah, throw all your meat and all the rest of it and just deal with spending loads of money on new things. Otherwise, who cares? You know, an extra week of eating dairy lee and whatever isn't going to kill you. So, yeah, just, just make sure as you run out of things, you're replacing them with either vegan alternatives or better still, finding you know, options that aren't, you know, we, we don't replace bacon for vegan bacon, we just we just don't eat bacon, do we? It's, it's not a thing we eat anymore, it's just, yeah. So, whatever's best for, for individuals. I think as well, educate, education is really, really important. Yeah. Really. Educate yourself on why, maybe even have a reason why you're going vegan. Are you going vegan because it's healthy for you are you going vegan because you really care about animals like why are you doing it because that will help you stick mm. to it because there's lots of good reasons to do it aren't there yeah. environmental so yeah absolutely you know the <clears throat> climate yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, listeners, I'm a bit of a stooge here because I am actually almost fully vegan. I started on my vegetarian journey 32 years ago. And yes, I know I've been a long time, but it, for me, it was because of animal cruelty. And I remember I'd had this dreadful beef salad in Wallsgrave Hospital, which I'd sent back. And I thought, that cow died for me. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. Never eaten meat since. Then I gave up fish, etc., etc., then eggs, then milk. There are still one or two things, though, that slip through. I'm not sure there are many 100% vegans. We're not 100% yeah. vegan. I had a bag of milk chocolate last night because we bought it in Sweden and it was blinking tasty. Yeah, I confess. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, you know, I think part of being vegan is doing the best that you can. Yeah. And I think we both do the best yeah. that we can, you know. Well, you make me mm. feel a heck of a lot better. 
Honestly, the friend that I said that we learned veganism off is less vegan than we are, if anything, because yeah. she regularly drinks hot chocolate and stuff. But yeah, also, if you say, right, I'm never going to do that thing again, most people don't like being told what to do, so most people will just go back. It's a bit like dieting, isn't it? If you think, I can't eat that, you can pet your bottom dollar the following day, you'll go out and you'll stock up on. And it is a dietary change, and, you know, um, it it does obviously um, uh, precipitate changes in your body and all that stuff. So yeah, it is something worth thinking about. So if any of our listeners are interested in going down the route, either like I did, very gradual, mm-hmm. yeah. should have been quicker, or like you two did, almost the overnight, well, mm-hmm. the overnight, yeah. are there any sort of websites or information that you'd recommend? Millions, isn't there? So <laughs> many, yeah. Plant-based, new... The Vegan Society actually have a lot of stuff. I mean, whether or not you fully embrace the ethos of the Vegan Society is, is a personal choice, but they have a lot of good stuff. There's more YouTubers, Instagrammers, TikTokers, Facetubers, and whatever else you can shake a stick at. Yeah, that. yeah. I, I actually use Instagram a lot yeah. for my recipe kind of inspiration. Um, you do a lot of the Deliciously Ella recipes. I absolutely yeah. love Deliciously Ella, um, who started her blog because mm-hmm. she was ill ten years ago, and yeah. now she has a multi-million company and a restaurant in London. And yeah, yeah. and you can just Google, I don't know, mm-hmm. vegan lasagna recipe or vegan whatever else recipe, and it, unless you're looking, for, to be honest, I bet if you Googled vegan three bird roast recipe, somebody somewhere will have gone. Well, actually, if you blend together walnuts and four lottie beans, you'll get a bird replacement. There will be some out there who tried it. Which leads me nicely on to my final question. Now, you've been leading the vegan course here. Yeah. What sort of recipes have you been cooking? Uh, we did stews. We did apple crumble last week. We did. Which was really fun. Um what else have done? We've done a biryani, oh, yeah. um, which was dead nice because one of the ladies is Asian and she was she was impressed with it because she wasn't sure how you veganise a biryani. So yeah, if you if you're impressing impressing the Asian with a with a curry, I reckon that's a winner. Um, and today, lasagna, I believe you're doing lasagna. Yeah, the lasagna are. with garlic bread. We meant to do that two weeks ago, but we couldn't find the right sauce, so we did a vegan bolognese with garlic bread instead. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, but no, it's a really good fun group and yeah. it's really nice seeing people become more confident. Yeah, really and is. people, especially with, you know, the climate crisis and mm. things like that, the energy crisis, um, it's really important that people know that there are options out there yeah. to get cheaper, cheap food, healthy food. Yeah, because veganism is cheap. If you're just buying vegetables, lentils, nuts, pulses, they're quite cheap. Yeah, it's and when it's you start buying, like, the fake replacements that yeah. it gets a bit expensive. I mean, we still do occasionally, Mm -hmm. like we buy sausages occasionally. I have to say plant food is my must-do. Yeah, it's nice. And the great thing, it's almost impossible to get food poisoning. So as a blind yeah. person, you don't have to worry about making sure your chicken yeah. is cooked all the way through, because <laughs> no. you can eat all this stuff raw and it doesn't matter. So 
Will you be running the course again, or is it just a continuum? Honestly, no one's told us to stop yet, so I reckon we just carry on until we get fed up a bit. I agree. Yeah, it's really, really fun, and it's, as I said, it's really, really rewarding mm. seeing people, um, you know, improve, gain that confidence. Yeah. Right, That's listeners. So you know what to do. Get in touch with the resource centre. And get your name down and your bodies up here <laughs> on a Wednesday morning. Yep, 10 till half 12. Yeah. Chris and Claire, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I have to admit, I'm not a vegan. I wouldn't like to give up meat. I do enjoy it too much. But it's supposed to be healthy, and I'm sure you'll be surprised at how tasty it can be. Why not try it for a change? Now, do you like pockets in your clothes, ladies? The original pockets in the Middle Age were bags hung from the belt around your waist. And these eventually evolved into built-in pockets prominent in men's clothing. But Sue's been wondering why women haven't generally had pockets. Why only people who seem to benefit from it are the handbag makers. The other day at a business conference, I watched as a hapless man asked one of the most fatuous questions in modern corporate life. He worked for the audio team that had to attach a clunky microphone battery pack to all the speakers going on stage. And each time he approached a female panellist, he said, Have you got an inside pocket in your jacket? Wasn't his fault. Most of the male speakers did have such a pocket into which the battery pack silkily slipped. But asking a woman if she has an inside jacket pocket... It's like asking if she has a ticket to the moon. For reasons that continue to baffle, the fashion industry remains infuriatingly resistant to the internal female coat pocket and is apt to make clothes without any useful pockets at all. The other day I bought a blazer that seemed to have three outside pockets only to get home and discover one was in fact a Potemkin pocket a fake slit sewn shut with nothing behind it. This rubbish is also rife on women's trousers, where pockets are typically feeble imitations of roomy male versions. Incredibly, the average front pockets in US women's blue jeans are 48% shorter and 6.5% narrower than the equivalent in men's jeans, say journalists at the Pudding publication. After measuring dozens of pockets in 20 of the most popular jeans brands in 2018, they also found less than half of women's front pockets could fit a thin wallet, let alone a phone and keys. Most would not fit the average woman's hand beyond the knuckles. This is good news for the $56 billion global handbag market. But a lot of women would cheerfully do what men have done for centuries and carry everything we need in pockets. Actually, women had pockets for ages too, big enough to hold the afterbirth from an illegitimate baby or a stolen duck, the Victoria and Albert Museum records. Things seemed to go downhill in the 19th century when female fashion drifted towards more svelte lines and pockets began their journey to today's uselessness. 
I was muttering about this to anyone who would listen at the business conference when suddenly a woman who was the chief executive of a very well-known company said, you need these. She opened her smart blue suit jacket to reveal inside there was not one but six pockets, including one with a highly desirable zip. In them she carried a work phone, a personal phone, her own business cards, cards others gave her, pens and a wallet. Also, she confided, her trousers all had properly sized pockets, side and back. Where had she found this stuff? It was tailor-made by Gormley and Gamble, whose founder, Phoebe Gormley, became the first women's wear-only tailor on Savile Row in 2015. All her jackets have at least one inside pocket, she told me, when I visited her premises last week, and all her clients are thrilled to find it. They go, oh, that's so exciting! Those clients are women of means. Gormley's prices start at £1,650 for a fully bespoke jacket and £550 for made-to-measure options. But why can't high street retailers include an inside pocket that Gormley reckons would cost no more than £3 per jacket to add? I asked a few. H&M said it had no comment. So did Rice. Zara's owner, Inditex, said at least two of its classic tailoring blazers had inside pockets, but did not say what proportion of all its jackets did. Women clearly face more dire problems than this, but as Gormley says, it's also wrong that high street women's wear typically comes in a fraction of the size permutations available in men's wear. Classic, slim, extra slim, short, long or regular leg and so on. The result, she says, is that when men don't find clothes that fit them, they say that's the clothes fault and look for a better fit. Women, having far fewer options, blame themselves instead. It makes women feel like they hate their body, she says. Ultimately, a more pocket-equal world would suit everyone, including men. Imagine going out without ever again hearing those tedious words, have you got room to carry my phone? Yes, I have mixed feelings about pockets. It depends on what I've got on, but I do quite like a pocket for a handkerchief. So do let us know whether you prefer pockets or handbags, or do you use both? Now, I've got a lot of crows in my garden lately, and many people think that the crow family, or corvids, that's crows, rooks, ravens, jackdaws, and jays, are the bullies of the garden birds, often portrayed as conniving, malicious, and harbingers of doom. But there's a lot more to this family than meets the eye, as Faith Equisol explains in this article, which was read by Nigel. Maybe it's their terrifying role in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Or perhaps it's Edgar Allan Poe's haunting poem, The Raven, or their notable appearances in so many legends and stories about death. Whatever the reason, corvids, the bird family which includes crows, rooks and magpies, are associated with life's darker or more mysterious side. 
It's a shame, because they're actually one of the great wonders of the avian world. Research shows that they are incredibly intelligent. Closed brains are believed to have 1.5 billion neurons, meaning their IQ could be closer to that of a great ape, and relative to body size, their brains are just as big. They are thought to be capable of conscious thought. They recognise people and can remember where they have left things and how long ago. They also mate for life, with some crows pairs recorded as remaining together for two decades. Nicky Creighton, Professor of Comparative Cognition at the University of Cambridge, has been dubbed Queen of the Corvids for her comprehensive research into this fascinating bird family. I've always been a bird nerd, but there's something special about the corvids. I call it the eyeball test. The way they look back at you when you look at them. That's what's hooked me, she says. She now runs four large aviaries in the university city, where her hand-reared corvids include 23 jays and seven rooks, which all have names from Wiggins, Eurasian jay, to Leonides, the rook. They have sophisticated social recognition, so much so that they will often bring a nice present, she says. By this she means something they know isn't inappropriate, given she doesn't eat meat. No carrion for me, just bottle caps and walnuts. They trust me and the others who work with them. Thanks to this trust and years of hard work, Nikki and her team have made some tantalising discoveries. Corvids hide or cache food, and through our work we have shown that birds who have been, th been thieves in the past will take extra steps to prevent the theft of their cache, she says. It shows they know and remember and can take steps to guard against something happening. She was filming segments of BBC's The One Show, where scientist Professor Robert Winston was prepped to allow one of her scrub jays sweetie pie to take a worm from his hand and then be filmed catching it. Sweetie pie had other ideas. She was happy to take and hide the worm but not in a place where the cameraman could see her doing it. She regarded him as a threat, says Nikki. This gave her an idea for an experiment which eventually demonstrated that corvids understand the difference between safe and vulnerable hiding places and how to use shade, like magicians do, to influence the expectations of what their audiences can see and expect. Research by other teams has shown that corvids can be trained to clear up litter, and new Caledonia crows in the South Pacific have been observed fashioning items as tools, then using them. The idea that corvids are extra smart is not especially new, says Nicky. If you think back to Aesop's fables about the clever crow who worked out how to get the water to rise in the pitcher by dropping in stones, it's all there. When asked why such bright social birds have such a grim reputation, she says part of the reason is their intelligence. If there's an individual that's up to no good and they are seemingly stupid, we don't see them as a threat. But if they are clever, we do. Nikki also thinks their appearances may prejudice some. Most corvids are black, and I think that colour has generally been associated in legends and belief systems with gloom and doom.
their nocturnal associations are incorrect too. They are more active at dawn and dusk, and like most other birds, roost and go to sleep at night. For naturalist and author Stephen Moss, his love of corvid sprang from their intelligence and personality, and he is now writing about ravens which, he says, appear in the creation myth of almost every northern hemisphere civilization. These birds are ambiguous in many cultures. They can be bringers of good things and bad, depending on the story being told, he says. Collectively, I think they are the most mythologicalized birds. Corvids are very good at what they do, and highly adaptable to habitats. They are found from the Arctic to the deserts of the Middle East, and to humans they have learned to live alongside, he says. Like Nicky, he believes we should learn to appreciate them more and more, because, he adds, they are really fabulous. So much as I don't like them in my garden, I must try not to think too badly of them, because they're really rather intelligent. Now, do you recall the name of Nick Raven, an entertainer? I must admit, I don't. But recently he came and gave a talk to the Monday Club, and later Dave caught with, up with him for a chat. This morning at the Monday Club, we welcome Nick Golden. Hello. Well, that, that's a great name for starters, isn't it? Well, <laughs> Where are you from? Well, I'm Nick Golden. I'm from Coventry. So I've only Good. come about two miles. I, I live near uh, Tile Hill. So it's been a short journey for me. Well, Nick Golden is Golden is actually my equity name. Yeah. Um, so it gives my stage a little bit of presence when I'm introduced. So when you introduce me, you go Golden. Great. Is there a kind of golden age of music or something like that? Well, that's how I thought about it, yes. Because yeah. I very much represent the 1940s. Yeah. So a lot of what I'm going to do now will be that era. But it also includes Dad's Army. Everything that was ever talked about, any musicals that go back to the 40s, it all gets included in there, as do some of the characters like Norman Wisdom. Mr. Grimsdale! I like that. Yeah. He, he perhaps get thrown in. Sometimes I bring, uh, Don't panic! Don't panic! So you get <laughs> corporal, Mr. Mallory. Yeah. <laughs> you may even get some days I bring Tommy Cooper because he was active in 1947 officially, according to Wikipedia. Great. Yes. Yeah, so a lot Can of the stuff. Tommy Cooper for us. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. Well, I, I can't do Tommy. I went to the dentist this morning. He said my teeth are fine, but my gums have got to come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. I like you. Fantastic. How long have you been doing this? Well, uh, my timing wasn't particularly great. Mm. 2019, I started off. I'd always had some presence in show business, like doing pantos, then throughout the year, doing a normal normal mm. job. And then I decided to go full-time. I love history, I like 1940s, steam trains. So mm. I put it all together, got myself a little PA, and went down the Alzheimer's Society, done a little free tour for them, see people like me. Because I had vocal coaching for over 10 years, okay. just because I wanted to have it done. Yeah. And then I started, got well into it, and then obviously COVID yeah. came, shut us all down. And then I, what everybody else had to do, just grin and bear it really, wasn't it? Yeah. But April, start, things starting off again, and I'm becoming really busy. Because I also do events, I do a lot of events as Bud Flanagan, I wear his fur coat. 
I sing some of his songs. I'll be doing a few today, like Strolling. When I'm strolling, just strolling by the light of the moon above. Every night I'll go out strolling, and I know my luck is rolling. When I'm strolling with the one I love. Sometimes I do run rabbit run and I do ask for a volunteer to be a rabbit, but it doesn't mean they get shot. No. So That's it, right. Great. But yeah, so not a great time to start. I got about 50 shows in, which I thought was yeah. tremendous in six months, and then it all come crippling yeah. down but yeah. I kept positive I talked myself to the organ during lockdown because mm. the organ the Hammond organ came to this country in 1934 that's when the, the real organ came over not like today where you can actually carry it you know mm. you needed a crane you did didn't you you needed yes. a crane but it came in 1934 did, and if you look on YouTube you will see a few prominent stars of the organ so I'll be putting in today I've decided to do silver threads amongst the gold Written in to do something from the 60s that is related back to the 40s and a classical piece of music inspired a whiter shade of pale. So I shall be doing that today as well. So I've got a lot to pack in, you know. You were the only girl in the world. I was the only boy. You can't look like a boy. That's my favourite. It's Doreen, by the way. Yeah. Nothing else would matter in this world today. We would go on laughing in the same old way. A garden of even space for two with nothing to mar joy. Life was just such wonderful things to you I could be such wonderful things to do if you were the only girl in the world and I was the only boy you 
Well, that was Doreen, listener Doreen Hilton I was delightfully dancing with. Thank you, Doreen. So, did you enjoy the morning? Yes, I, I did enjoy the morning. I enjoyed the dancing. Um, it was really lovely, a lovely dance. As um, I'm a musical person, always has been, and I enjoy singing. I, I, I really loved it. Really loved the morning completely. Thank you. Yeah. This is the army, Mr. Jones. No private rooms or telephones. So, uh, did you enjoy the morning, Eva? Fantastic. The music, the reminiscing, the singing. Fantastic morning. Took me back to the past where everything was so much simpler. So, it was lovely. Thank you. Hello, I'm speaking to Peggy Bloom. So, what do you think of the morning? Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so did everybody else. Please let him, let us have him again, David. His songs were all the old ones that we knew. Thank you. That's all from a fantastic morning with Nick Golden at the Monday Club. Bye for now. And will always give me well, thank you today for that. Now, that just about brings us to the end of this week's edition of Outlook. So, that's it. Goodbye for me, Sheila Allen.